take the victim to a place where they have more privacy and control? Victims go through trauma, you know, asking who, what, when, where, why questions is not really accurate. It is perfectly fine and constitutional for the police to tell a suspect that they have that kind of evidence when they don't. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today, remotely from New York City, is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. I have switched the sides of the country with Jim to Jim's hometown. Jim, everyone here knows you. Uh, Well, I don't know about that, but (laughs) I know everyone there. So... One way or the other. But anyway, I do miss New York. But I'm really excited because today in the studio, in XG Production Studio, we have a very special guest returning, and that is... It is um, Kevin McNeil, a former detective of 20 years with the uh, DeKalb County Police Department in Atlanta, Georgia, and the owner of the 12 Project. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So we're grateful to have you back here, Kevin, and we can't wait to just dive into another one of your best or worst cases because we know that you always tell an amazing story. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Jim. It's good to be in the studio in L.A. That's great. He does. And I have to say, Jim, on behalf of our female listeners, I suspect some of their hearts are going pitter-pat. And I hope that doesn't offend you, Kevin, but we had so many women write in after your uh, last couple of episodes with us and say <laughs> that they just loved hearing your Southern drawl. Oh, wow. I like that. I Thank you. Thank you. That's the first time I ever heard that. <laughs> Normally, I get criticized for it, but now I'm, I'm feeling it now. Go ahead. Thank you so much. Well, Kevin, can you please bring us and our audience to the point in your career that the case you're about to talk to us occurred? Yes, I was a fairly young detective. I probably was uh, a detective for about four or five years. And at this point in my career, I began to learn a lot on my own. Mm-hmm. Um learn to go with my gut instincts and learn to not just look for things that were obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at this point, I was really excited about working cases. I was very enthused about it. I wanted the hard cases. I wanted the ones that other people couldn't solve. Wow. You know, so I would ask them, give me that case. You know, when other detectives were complaining, I was in my career where I was. I was chasing down cases. That's awesome. Yeah. I would hear cases go over the radio and be like, SARS, give me that case. I want that case. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned gut instincts because I didn't really realize it as early in my career as you did. But Mm -hmm. when I was uh, an FBI profiler, uh, I'd say, you know, maybe three, four, four years into that part of my job, which was sort of in the second half of my career, 
I really started to trust my instincts yeah. so much better. Yeah. And it's not just uh, some kind of magical thing, mm -hmm. but it's the fact that you're around so many cases that you learn so much information. Your, your brain is taking in all this amazing information. And fortunately, our subconscious does an amazing job at crunching all that data. And it tells us something through our gut, exactly. you know, it communicates with us through our gut and makes us feel. And if we learn how to listen to those feelings, we can be incredibly effective investigators. Oh, definitely. The tension, actually, the brain being an anticipatory organ, you give it something to, to figure out. And it, like you say, your subconscious goes to work trying to figure it out. Right. And for me, that's exciting. You know, yeah. I love a good mystery. Well, that's great. Yeah. So let's talk about on the day that this case came in. What exactly were you doing at the time that you first found out about this case? I was actually sitting. We had a meeting in the office and the lead detective on this particular case was stressed out. He he didn't know what he should do next. He felt like he was at a, a standstill. And of course, you know, I'm listening to his notes and I'm noticing he's looking for the obvious. And I'm like, you're not going to solve this case from the office looking for things that's going to pop out at you. You're going to have to develop a theory. You're going to have to try to figure out this person's attitude figure out what they're doing. And so I'm sitting here listening to the meeting and I'm noticing he's complaining about the case. So I asked the sergeant, hey, could I help him with this case? I would love this case. Because about this time in the office, I'm I'm known as the too eager guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wasn't surprised. So it was like, you know, other detectives hated me. Like this guy's, you know. What's up with I, him? Yeah, I don't think he have a life. You know, this guy needs to get a life, right? So so I was like, L can I help him with the case? Eventually, my, you know, I must admit, my, my goal was to take it over. But uh, <laughs> he was going to let me because I, I knew he didn't really want to be bothered. All right. Okay. So what did you first find out? about the case well i found out this person was he was a, a serial rapist but the way he was raping women it was during the daytime in the morning and he always caught women at bus stops and he would tackle them like actually physically tackle them and rape them right there it's really like he wasn't trying to pull them away he would rape them right there on the side of the road well, that's a pretty rare circumstance yeah. have, have you heard of cases like that Francie, in your career? I don't think so, Jim. I was just wondering about that. And I can't think of a single case where there was a, a rapist that I heard about or worked on that raped women in public like that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Usually they do. They take mm -hmm. the victim to a place where they have more privacy and control mm -hmm. and doing something so bold and brazen and and horrific right in public. That's yeah. a high risk behavior. Well, and Jim, it almost sounds to me like someone who may, I hate to say this because the person's a rapist and deserves prison, but still it sounds like there may be a mental illness element going on there. Well, I don't know. We'll see how mm -hmm. this plays out. But so what did you think when you heard that? And this detective was complaining about this case. Well, the first thing I wanted to do is go. It was two of them by the time he was talking about the case. So there's and two rapes. There's in two which... rapes in which they're similar. Mm -hmm. And that's how I knew, even though they were in different areas, it was just so ironic. This couldn't have been two different people. Right. Because uh, the behavior was mm -hmm. so unique. It was. That you basically linked those cases behaviorally. Exactly. Exactly. I wasn't going with the description or, you know, because I know what, what when victims go through trauma, you know, asking who, what, when, where, why questions is not really accurate because of. The brain is not really focusing on, you know, details. It's trying to survive the event. And so I knew if I was going to solve this case or help with the case, I needed to go to the actual scene and see actually where the assault occurred. Okay, so let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. 
did, is that what you did first? That's you exactly. went to the scenes? I went to the so scenes. So there's two different scenes, mm -hmm. two different parts of town. How far apart were they? They were probably about five miles apart. Okay. Uh, and they were both at bus stops. Bus now, stops. I know bus stops in New York City, mm -hmm. and I know bus stops in Los Angeles. They could be radically different. What were these bus stops like? Yeah. In Atlanta, bus stops are very standalone. They don't have any coverings. And they, they're normally near main roadways. So this is what made it even more odd to me. Like... It was in the morning, like people were going to work. Like what time of the day? It was probably like 6.30, 6.30 in the morning. Okay, so it's early in the it's morning. It's early. Yeah, but that's still certainly, I'm just really interested to hear this case as you talk about it, Kevin, but it strikes me that that's certainly not early enough to ensure seclusion for what he was mm -hmm. doing. No way. Mm -hmm. That's 6.30. Atlanta is not a sleepy city. It's not a late town like L.A. Uh, it's early. People are up and moving at 6.30. Traffic's already getting bad. Oh, yeah, definitely. Wow. Definitely. All right. So and are they by businesses out in rural areas? Like what? where are they? They're not near business. They're actually in neighborhoods like where people actually come out of the neighborhood and to catch the bus. And so but they're on main uh, streets. And I think in both of the locations, one was in front of an abandoned house and one was in front of a house that was occupied. Mm. And either way, we would thought that he would have drugged the woman to the abandoned house, but he didn't. Uh, he raped her right there. And both times right he got on the battled. Sidewalk yeah. or what? And then he beat them. Like if they tried to fight back, he would beat them. He beat one victim so badly. I mean, we had to, she had to be hospitalized. Wow. Did he say anything during the course? Told him, stop fighting, stop fighting, don't fight, don't fight. And that's another thing I was picking up on. Like, what was this guy saying to you? He would actually violently tackle them. And so a lot of the victims say they saw him first. He would walk by them first and then double back. Mm. And then when he doubled back, he would just attack them. Didn't even give him a chance to respond. So it was a blitz attack. Oh, yes. It was like a football tackle. You know, they described it as a football tackle. Really? Yeah. And, and did he say anything else during the course of the rape that you know? One victim, he just started beating her. And told her to be quiet. Don't say anything. Don't move. Stop fighting. Stop fighting. And so, and raped her, penetrated her, uh, made her do all kind of horrible things. And then told her to lay on her stomach, close her eyes, and count. That was another interesting thing that he told him to do. Count to a certain number. I think it was like a hundred before she got up and called the police. And he told, and he told both of them the same thing. Both of them the same thing to count. Mm -hmm. So these similarities, I was playing in my mind. I was like, okay, I'm trying to develop a theory. Like, what type of person? is doing this, right? you know. And so did going to the scene in these two cases, uh, did going to the scene tell you anything? Did, were you any further informed about this person and what he was doing and why he was doing it? Yeah, normally when I go to the scenes, I look around, I, I try to let the, the scene speak to me, like why this area of all areas? Uh, I looked at the grass to see what the, you can actually see where some grass was growing and where they I had the victim, the grass was like pressed down mm -hmm. and so, those are little things like that you're seeing. And uh, on one scene where he, he had beat one of the girls, you can see where she spit up blood. And so I'm trying to look across the business to see if there's any camera surveillance video that may have caught the incident. And so I didn't find any of that. Okay. And how far apart in time were these two they were, that was another thing that's an interesting question. Thank you for asking that. They were on certain days. So I started developing there. Maybe this guy's getting off work or he's going to work himself or he just chose this time of day. But it was probably in, I think it was the beginning of the week. And then we go silent. And then it was happening at the beginning of the week again, same time period. Mm. And so I was trying to develop is this guy working? Is he, is he a vagrant? Um, so I was trying to develop a theory as to why he's attacking now. And why she's attacking there. 
Right. Yeah, and speaking of there, that's what I was going to say. Uh, Kevin, we do have a lot of Atlanta listeners. Can you give us a little bit, for those of us who are familiar with Atlanta and DeKalb County in particular, can you give us the general area where these occurred? Yes, Memorial Drive and Kensington Drive over wow. there by, actually it's interesting because it was near the jail. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and of course, I'm very familiar with where that is, and I'm familiar with Memorial Drive. So, Memorial Drive is a very busy street generally. This is just shocking to me that these would occur in the daylight. Was it in daylight? Was it summer or winter or what? It was winter. That's another thing. It was winter. These women were cold, and he was making them undress and raping them during the winter months. Mm. Wow, that's terrible. So, at 630 in the morning, though, in the winter, it's gonna. it's still probably dark, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of beginning to be light, but it's, it, it is somewhat dark. OK, so then that actually takes a little bit away from uh, the risk. I mean, if yeah. he's doing it at the end of the nighttime yeah. and he still has the cover of darkness, then it would uh, you know, not be quite as brazen. Exactly. So after you visited the scene, mm-hmm. what was the next thing that you did? The next thing I did, I actually uh, went back to the office. I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to put these two cases together. I told the guy to give me all his notes. The other detective, he gave me all his notes and the guy hits again like two weeks later. Like this time, it's like a longer period of time and the time is slightly off. It's a little bit earlier, like 5.45. And so what I started to do was told them to give me the case. I will put the case together and work the case, but I had nothing. I had no leads, no anything. Mm-hmm. And so when I got that third one, it just went cold. He stopped. So, but same circumstances, yep. tackled the woman at a bus stop, bus stop mm-hmm. very early in the morning, yep. right there on the scene, Yep. told her to count, all that. All okay, that so same. now you have, you definitely have a serial offender here exactly. and you have three rapes in the space of one month. Yes, right. Yes. And, and then nothing happens for a while. Nothing. Which brought as a detective that just eats you up. Cause when you have nothing else to go off, when you, you hate to say this, you hope he strikes again so you can get another cause he's going to leave. Yeah, something. You don't want him yeah. to strike again, mm-hmm. but <laughs> you hope that if you can't, find him in the meantime, that there's some other information that comes forward. And unfortunately, in a lot of the cases, the only thing that comes forward is another crime. It's another crime. Because the community, that's another thing, I canvassed the community, nobody, they thought it was, we got the media involved, they thought it was, oh man, this is a horrible incident. Who would do something like that? But nobody would talk. And so it was like, does the guy stay in the area? Mm. Like, that's kind of a brazen act and wearing no mask, Right, you weren't trying to conceal your face. Could these women have possibly seen him before mm. in the area? And if they see him again, would they recognize him? Right. So one of the things I realized, okay, this guy must not stay here because that's pretty bold to not wear a mask mm-hmm. and to do it at such a time as he was doing it. So it went cold and I began to get worried. Like, well, Kevin, uh, so, so I, I have a question. Uh-huh. I'm sure at this point, and you already mentioned that you had spoken to the victim. So were you able to speak to all three victims and had you interviewed them and, and gotten any details about the person that was committing this crime besides just what he did? Oh, yeah. It, it was very little details, but the little that I picked up and I, I got the notes from the detective was very interesting. Actually, it was those little details that actually helped me solve the case. Like when he was making them do specific acts, he had scars in certain areas, even though they couldn't look at his face. 
when they was performing these acts, they saw certain scars on parts of his body. Okay. So I notated that and I was like, okay, let, let me notate that. And you'll see later why that was so significant, so important. Okay. So the co- case went cold for a while. I'm yeah. sure you were working a lot of other cases. Mm-hmm. You were running around doing all sorts of stuff yes. in the normal course of your job. But what was going on with this? Was it nagging at you? Was it oh, bothering man. you? It was bothering me so bad. I, I didn't want to get assigned any other cases. I actually went to supervisor and said, hey, can you hold up on cases? I need to solve this case. Like, and so yeah. what were you doing to solve it? How were you pushing I, the case forward? I was like, I was Googling things. I was like in the neighborhoods. I would park my car and just sit there for hours to see if I saw anybody doing any strange behavior. So I would come to work early at the time that I thought this person would strike and see if I saw somebody walking their bus stops back and forth. So I was like, you know, stalking this guy, trying to find out, man, you know, I need something. I need something. Okay. And did you ever get a break? I did. I did. I was on call. I was the on call detective, which I hate being on call. Uh, And I got a call to like, well, let's just go back. Why? Why do you hate being on call? (laughs) Because I like to sleep. (laughs) And when you're on call, they call you for every single thing. And I told you, I'm the guy. I like the serious stuff. Like, give me the hard cases. Like, I think hard cases are more exciting. They're easier to solve for me. Uh, But then you'll get calls in the morning like, you know, Somebody called and threatened somebody with a phone. You know, you're like, okay, you woke me up for that. <laughs> you know, so I was on call. I knew I wasn't going to sleep this night. So I was like, okay. But then the phone rings and I answered the phone. And when I answered the phone, they was like, hey, we got an off shot on the scene. A lady called and said she was walking home. And when she got near her house, this guy tackled her. And they rolled down the hill and he raped her right there. And I was mm. like, whoa, really? And, you know, I was so excited. I jumped out of the bed. I said, hold what you got. Hold what you got. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. And so it was interesting, though. This person, he actually kidnapped, which was a little different. Mm. After he was done tackling her, was assaulting her, he figured he wanted to finish up. Opened the trunk and put it in the trunk of the car. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So now you know you have a guy that has a car. I mean, before, you didn't know that, right? Yeah, I didn't know that at first. And so I was like, okay, okay. And then here's the interesting part. He, after he was done, he took her to a house that was occupied that she said was his house. I mean, this victim was perfect. Mm. She was able to describe the house. And then he put her back in the trunk and drove her, I guess, close to where he picked her up at and put her out. But little did he know, he had mail in his trunk. Oh, really? Yeah. He had mail in the trunk that had his address and his his name on it? Had his mom's name on it. Okay. his mom's name on it. And she grabbed it when she jumped out the trunk and ran. Really? Yeah. (gasps) She took it? Yeah, she took it. Wow, that is impressive that she could think like that. Yeah. So when they told me that, I was like, wow, really? 
And so I was so excited about that. I said, yeah, okay, finally. I got All right. It. That sounds like a, a tremendous break in this case. So mm-hmm. weird, though, that yeah. he would take um, an MO that has been successful for him, mm-hmm. you know, tackling women in the public and committing that violent crime right there in public and then leaving, disappearing like a ghost and not leaving really any trace yeah. to yeah. taking her yeah. in his car to a location that appears to be his own home Mm -hmm. and then letting her go. Let her go. And that's what I was like, wow. You know, I was so excited because she was able to give us a description of the vehicle. I had the letter with the address. And so I was telling the officers, before I get out there, go by the house, make sure that vehicle doesn't leave. Right. Make sure that house Give me a description of the house because I got to get a search warrant now. Right. I got to wake a judge. So up. you're saying you put um, you put cops on the house. Yes. To make sure the vehicle doesn't leave. Doesn't leave or if he returned. Because when they got there, they told me the vehicle is not there. Okay. The vehicle is not there. Mm-hmm. So then so you put cops on the house to determine whether or not that vehicle was at the house. Exactly. And if whether or not it showed up and mm-hmm. who showed up in it. Exactly. And so on and so forth. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to establish a timeline because I didn't want the, the car to be there and was there most of the night when this victim said she was picked up by the car. So when the officer got there and confirmed that the vehicle is not there. Yeah. Yeah. So just before we go into the next steps here, Mm -hmm. can you tell me, was there anything different about this victim? Was there, did you find out any reason why this victim was treated very differently than all the others? You know, that, that really got me to thinking and he chose the wrong victim because she was very detailed. I mean, it was almost to the point she was so detailed, the officers thought that she knew him. Mm. That was kind of the, uh, she knew a little bit too much about this guy. And here's here's why. This is why why, why she was such a, she watched, uh, I forget what show she watched. She watched. Criminal she Minds. Like, yeah, 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 Criminal Minds. It was, it was, it was one of those shows. <laughs> but it was interesting. And she told me that, that she watched those shows and she knew what the detectives did to get evidence. That's why she took the letter. Got right. It. So, so uh, smart. Yeah. But I don't know what made him keep her. Yeah. That was. But also it was she wasn't at a bus stop. Mm -hmm. Uh, She got tackled down a hill. Mm -hmm. Right. And and then he took her Mm -hmm. after first sexually assaulting her there. He took her to another location Mm -hmm. and sexually assaulted her again. Yes. So that's a very. Yeah. That's an escalation. Oh, yeah. Change in M.O. That's pretty significant. Uh, I can't wait to hear about the rest of the story. Let me go back. One of my previous victims said that when he was assaulting her she could smell paint okay that was that was interesting like okay because a lot of times when when detectives victims can't get detectives physical description they fail to ask other things that the victim could have noticed during the attack right because all of our senses are working all the time so many times in fact those other details those Mm -hmm. other sensory details are actually very critical in terms of solving a case oh yes even talking accent the drawl did they sound local you know but this particular victim said he smelled like paint so i said okay okay, maybe this guy does work maybe he does maybe he does work maybe Uh, he's a painter yes yeah and so you're going to find out why that's so interesting okay well we we can't wait (laughs) so all right so now you're swearing out an affidavit for a search warrant yes yes okay and so you put in all the information you have right i do and you have to go before a judge and you have to convince this judge that there's probable cause that you should be able to basically bust into this house and do a search and see if there's evidence of a crime there. Exactly. Exactly. So the judge gives me the search warrant and I get there and I'm kind of worried when I get there because the car is not there. Mm. And so I was like, okay, 
is anybody home? Let's find out. You know, and so you don't want to alert somebody yeah, that will then alert, alert him, him. And then yeah, and so I said, well, we're gonna take a chance. We knock on this door with all these police out here, and I'm a detective coming up here. Somebody answer. I'm eventually have to tell them why we're here, mm-hmm. and I don't want this person that was my fear to call us, call them, and say, hey, right. the police here. And so we did that, and an elderly person came to the door, elderly woman. And so that really worried me. Like, wow, okay, this is an old lady. Like, <laughs> you know, not your not, rapist. Yeah, probably. not my rapist. And I was like, okay. And I was like, ma'am, do you live here alone? And she was like, no, my son lives with me. So, okay, where is he at right now? And she said, well, he borrowed my car. So, ma'am, do you mind if we step in for a minute? She said, sure, come in. She said, what's the problem? Is he okay? I said, ma'am, well, that's what we're trying to find out. And I asked her, I said, ma'am, if you don't mind me asking, what type of vehicle do you have? And she described the vehicle that the victim described. Mm. And I was like, okay. And I was like, okay. She was like, what's happening? I said, well, man, we just need to, you know, find out if your son is okay. Did he work tonight? No, he went somewhere in my car. He just needed the car. I said, okay. And I said, ma'am, let me ask you something. Has your son ever been in trouble before? And she was like, yeah, he, he was in prison. Uh-oh. I said, what, what for? She was like, it was for battery, assaulting a woman, a female. So, okay. Mm-hmm. I said, has he ever had any surgery for anything? And she said, why? I said, I'm just asking. I'm trying to make sure we talk about the right guy. She said, yeah, while he was in prison, he had to get his appendix taken out. Mm. And so one of the victims who had described this scar, described the scar right over his stomach. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. So she was giving me this information. I'm like, oh, I'm trying to contain myself. Like, okay, okay. And I said, does he work? She said, well, he did work. I said, what type of work he did? She said, he used to paint. Uh-huh. I said, really? She said, yeah, I bought him a van because I wanted him to say I was trouble when he got out of jail. I bought him a van and he went and sold it. He got rid of it for some reason. Mm. It's like, oh, why did he give it? She said, I was so mad at him. He sold that truck so fast, and I gave it to him as a gift so he can work. I don't know why he sold it. I was like, oh, okay, okay. And to go back, one person doing my other investigation of the other cases, one witness did mention a white van driving up and down the road. Mm. So when she mentioned white van, she had bought it. I said, oh, okay, wow. I said, where's he at now? Call him and tell him to come home. And she was like, okay, is he in trouble? I said, no, we just want to talk to him. So she calls him, put him on speakerphone, and he was like, Mom, I'm not coming home. Police, they're not coming. And well, I said, she told him the police were mm-hmm. there. Told us. I said, and we was like, sir, you need to come home. This is what's going to happen. Somebody, we got a victim, said she's been in this house and she was assaulted in this house. We're going to take your mom down to the precinct. All right. And we're going to ask your mom questions. We're going to go through this house with fine tooth comb. If you don't want your mom's house destroyed, you need to come to this house. He said, okay. He pulls up in the very car that he picked her up in. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait. So, Kevin, you told him to come home mm-hmm. or you were taking mama to jail. And he did. He showed up. He showed up. He showed up. Wow. He didn't want his mom getting in trouble. Well, he cares about his mom. Yeah. Isn't that special? <laughs> yeah. So sweet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So he, wow. Yeah. So he showed up mm-hmm. and in that car. And mm-hmm. I imagine you seized the car and seized did a forensic examination of the trunk. Did all that. Yeah. And and how about of him? Yeah. We asked him to come down. We need to talk to him. He wanted to say, well, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I said, well, we got a victim that says otherwise. Okay. Before we get there, can you just tell me whether or not there was any forensic evidence collected during any of these rapes? Were the rape kits done? Was there DNA collected? There was rape kits and there was DNA. Okay. Um, so that, that you have that in the back of your mind. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So we have all this evidence and said, okay, we're going to get this guy. And so what came back. It was inconclusive, like on most of the cases. What? Yeah, the DNA. 
came back. All of it? Yeah, all of it. And so I was like, oh, my God, we don't have anything like to nail, nail this guy down with. Mm. So but I knew I had to interview him. And so when we went to the interview. I just let him talk. My, my theory is if a suspect's going to talk, let him talk. I don't want to ask you any questions to stop you. Like most detectives do, they stop you. They get a point. They want to make you go further with the point. Mm-hmm. I just let him talk. And he got to talking and got to talking. And I said, uh, this young lady was in your house. And he was like, I had no young lady in my house. And when I tell you this victim described the house, mm-hmm. when she was a good victim. She was telling me about the hallways, the pictures that were on the hallway. And when I said she was so good, people thought she knew him, thought she had been there before because mm-hmm. she described the house so well. And so when I told him she had been in the house, he was like, no, no one was in my house. I played a clip of the tape of her talking about the house and I stopped it. He said, oh, you're talking about that girl. Uh, yeah. That girl. Yeah, yeah. That particular girl. Yeah, you're talking about oh, that girl. Oh, her. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It yeah. was how recently? Yeah, it was like, not even an hour. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the one from all the way back an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So, mm-hmm. you know that you got him now. Yeah, I got him. Okay. So, what does he say? I let him tell the story. I said, so tell me about this girl. He said, well, she was walking down the street. I said, "What? where at? He, he named the location where he got her from, where she said she was attacked. And he said that she, I tried to talk to her and she got in the car and she came to my house and then mm-hmm. we had sex. And then after we had sex, she asked me for money and I told her I don't pay for sex. I said, so what you're trying to tell me is this person trying to tell me you didn't pay and that's why she's saying you raped her. He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. I said, but just a few minutes ago, you said you didn't know a girl. Cause I got the, then I showed him the letter, mm-hmm. right? And he was really like mm-hmm. dumbfounded, like, wow. You know, like, uh oh, yeah, like there's evidence yeah. from the trunk of the car. How did mm-hmm. you get that? Yeah, and then I lied about having DNA, right? And I can see his wheels turning. And I said, tell me about these other girls you attacked. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, who you stay with? He said, I stay with my mom. He was like, you can ask my wife. I said, wait, you married? So now he just pulled in another witness. Uh-huh. All right. So when I talked to the wife, said, where was your husband at from this time to this time? She was like, why? I said, man, I'm just asking you a question. Was your husband with you? Be careful how you answer that. Uh-huh. Right. Because we're investigating a crime. She was like, no, he, he wasn't. And so I said, where your husband work? And she told me where he worked. He worked near those areas where those bus stops were. Uh, so I was like, okay, yeah. Okay. So he brought her into it. I would have never right. knew about the wife if he hadn't said it. But when he said it, I knew the interviewer. And she was giving me stuff she didn't know was helping me in my case. Right. Yeah. Well, let's back up for a second, Kevin. Our listeners, uh, eagle-eared listeners, may have noticed that you said you lied to him and told him that you had DNA when you yeah. it was inconclusive. I just want to make it clear for our listeners that it is perfectly fine and constitutional for the police to tell a suspect that they have that kind of evidence when they don't. Uh, that's been upheld mm-hmm. many times by the Supreme Court as a perfectly appropriate police tactic. They can say, we have your fingerprints, we have your DNA, we have your blood at the scene, whatever it is, they can say that you can say that you have it even when you don't. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a technique that we use. And I always tell people and when, you know, when I'm questioned about it on the stand, I always tell, you know, the defense attorney, my name is Kevin McNeil. That doesn't change. You can challenge me anyway. I'm not going to deviate from that. So it shows untruthfulness. If you go from one story to another story after you find out a diff- additional information I have then I'm that my, my method is trying to show untruthfulness. So that's the reason for doing it. So when I'm asked why I do it, I'm trying to show that the suspect is being untruthful in their story. Right. Yeah. And that 
ability to be able to do that stop short of showing an actual report that has uh, evidence mm -hmm. that you know shows that the FBI lab or some other lab yeah. conclusively matched your DNA to the DNA at this scene and stuff. You have to stop short of that. You can verbally say that to them. Yeah. And the the theory is that if you didn't do that, if there was no way mm -hmm. that you could have left DNA there, yeah. then you would have said. Uh, no, that's you, you'd yeah. have a high degree of confidence in saying that's garbage, yeah. that's not true, mm -hmm. and you're lying and you're setting me up or <laughs> exactly. whatever. But if you did actually do the crime, mm -hmm. then that might encourage you to come forward and say, okay, I admit it. Yeah. The, the problem, of course, is that in some cases, when a defendant is very suggestible or very scared, they might say, okay, I did it, even if they didn't. But the way you cure that mm -hmm. is by actually drilling down, asking more questions, finding out if, in fact, the person has more information than you have, yeah. or he's just parroting back what you tell exactly. him. So exactly. Exactly. It's a it's a responsibility on the part of the officers to make sure that they're not getting a false confession. Exactly. Well, and also another classic technique, Kevin, that I'm wondering if you guys uh, felt like you needed to do at this point because you didn't have DNA was some kind of a lineup for these victims to see if they could identify him. And now that could be our listeners might be interested to hear that could be either a lineup of his face or it could be a lineup showing just his body or showing them photos that you took of his body. Were, were either of those things done to help the victims identify him? None of those things was done. I think the, the prior detective wanted to do a photo lineup, but the certainty of them being able to pick him out was unsure. And I didn't want to take that chance of them picking the wrong person in the lineup mm -hmm. um, or not being able to pick it. Because I've had cases where that actor works worked against me. So if they couldn't come to me and say, I can do a sketch of this guy. If they did a sketch, I would do a photo lineup. Uh, right. But none of these victims, you know, saw his face. So they were told not to look at him. And so they were not able to give accurate descriptions. And so I decided to go against the lineup. But they did, though, identify scars. Scars. That's what nailed them and got me to really build a case against them. The scars, the smell, his mom saying what she said, the wording. Uh, he was using that was consistent with all the victims. He used it with the one he picked up and put in the trunk. And interesting, he made her take a shower too. Mm. He made her take a shower. She said he made her, he watched her, told her, watch this, watch this. So he's he's engaging in forensic countermeasures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's taking, he's making her take shower, then let her get dressed and get back in the, in the actual. So Jim, it sounds to me then behaviorally, he's decided that you know, he's left his DNA in a couple of places, that is, after sexually assaulting and violently beating these women, and he got away with it. So now he's decided, well, I better not leave my DNA. So he took the victim to his house to make her shower. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, pretty crazy. Um, yeah. Well, I just, uh, you know, thank God that this woman, you know, survived and she was so articulate and her ability to remember details, even while she was under tremendous duress, was pretty great so yeah. it's a great thing that 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 happened i mean i'm sorry that that she went through that but she certainly did help mm -hmm. solve this case and i hope you're going to tell us that he was brought to justice oh definitely i um, the good news he was brought to justice i had to use that one case where i had all the evidence the letter you know him saying that he brought it to the house uh, we weren't able to get him on the rest of them but ironically the assault stopped 
when we make the rest. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I don't so, know if that's ironic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's logically. Yeah, logically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but he was trying to say he didn't commit any other offenses, um, but we was able to prosecute him on that one. And did he plead guilty or was he convicted at a trial, Kevin? He was convicted at a trial. He didn't plea. Uh, he fought it all the way, said it wasn't him. But yeah, I got justice on that. So I was very happy about that. Well, and do you recall what kind of sentence he got, Kevin? I don't remember right offhand, but it, it was a pretty good sentence. That's great. So can I ask you, Kevin, is this mm-hmm. one of your best or one of your worst cases and why? It's one of my best cases because I was able to take very little and stick with a case and let it kind of stay with me. So when I heard something else uh, go go forward, I can I can piece it together. Uh, so it was one of my best cases because it, it taught me never give up on a case, particularly when you have victims that are still out here looking for justice, uh, to never give up on them or their cases. And so that that was one of my best cases. Wow. That's great, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Kevin, as always, we really enjoy you coming in and talking to us about your cases. I'm sure our listeners do as well. Yes, sir. Um, you did some amazing work, and thanks for being so gung ho that everybody hated you at the <laughs> office for it. That's right. Thanks, Kevin. Really appreciate you coming back in and talking to us about another very difficult case. Oh, thank you. And we're looking forward to having you back again yes, to sir. talk to us about other cases that you've worked in your career. But for now, we want to thank our listeners for tuning in, and we're signing off for Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d2l.org. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.